Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The year is 1980, and here's Nicholson. The movie, The Shining. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson, no relation. You were so excited to say that opening line. I knew it. You loved it. You got to say your own name. Uh, and I am uh, Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are looking for the best movies of all time. And when we find them, we're sending them up into outer space for the aliens to see, to understand us, to get to know us better, what was important to the human race, these movies. Um, Amy... We're talking about The Shining today. So excited to talk about The Shining. And we were kind of talking last week about Kubrick being one of the filmmakers that we've done probably the most on the show. He really has. There have been points in the show and I've been like, that's it. No more Kubrick. We've talked about so much Kubrick. There were so many Kubrick films on the original AFI list. We had Dr. Strangelove, 2001, A Clockwork Orange. Uh, we had also um, Spartacus. I always forget that we had Spartacus. I forget that that's a Kubrick film, but it is. And it just goes to show you how different each one of his films are. So we are wrapping up our our cold, our winter, our snow series, whatever you want to call the series. And we are going to kind of continue with another series that is looking forward to the Academy Awards, but a little bit different. We're calling it The Contenders. And what we're going to be doing is taking someone that is nominated this year, nominated for a performance or for writing or for directing, and we're going to go back and look at one of their earlier pieces of work. So, for example... Guillermo del Toro is nominated for Nightmare Alley. We're not going to talk about Nightmare Alley, but we might talk about 
one of his other films that we feel like maybe is his best work. We don't know. We're going to tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the episode, but that's what we have coming up in our next series. But before we even get into that, Amy, want to talk a little bit about our Jackass episode. Uh, Chris Pontius and Johnny Knoxville both agreed with us that Chris Pontius should be nominated for Academy Award. They both retweeted our videos. I was really surprised that so many people had not watched Jackass and maybe thought it was a little bit beneath them. But for whatever reason, they trusted us, they went in, and they really loved these movies. True. I mean, we did not get a lot of play on the Unspooled Facebook message board about voting it into space, but there were some comments in there that I really liked. They're just like, how can you show the range of cinema if you don't include a jackass or something like a jackass? We need to really at least use this list to break through the idea of like the limitations we put on film. It's got to be serious. It's probably got to be directed by Kubrick. I mean, that's how it felt the first season. So I appreciated all of those comments. And I will say, Paul, we ended the episode with me a little bit on the fence. Like, I don't know for sure if this is my favorite Jackass movie. I went and saw Jackass 4 again at the DJ, which is kind of weird because, you know, when you see films at the DJ, it's like a, it can be an older crowd. So it's yeah. very nervous what seeing Jackass 4 at the DJ would be like, not as raucous as it probably was in a lot of people's theatrical screenings, but some passionate snorting. Uh, <laughs> And then at the end, um, of course, at the DJ, you know, of course, the director tends to come out and get interviewed by one of their peers. And so um, Jeff Tremaine came out and he was interviewed by Spike Jones. And I have to say, I was so stoked for this conversation, but it was kind of rough because you got the sense up there that these are old buddies. And like Jeff was just like, he knows all my stories and he didn't really tell them again. I was like, no, we want to know all the stories, all the stories. And he was like, you know how it was. No, no, we need it all. Everything. Well, you know, just to kind of bring it back to the point that I've been fighting since very early on, uh, somebody sent us something on Twitter of Johnny Knoxville talking about uh, Buster Keaton. And Johnny Knoxville says, you know, I saw a Buster Keaton film where he had this mini cannon tied to his foot and he couldn't get it off his foot. And I thought that looked funny. So we had one built. So he did that. He did a little bit of an homage to Buster Keaton. I don't know if that actually was in a film. I don't know what the context of that clip was that someone sent us, but I'm going to say that at least Knoxville, uh, you know, recognizes where he's coming from a little bit with this film. Uh, And you know, you see everyone, you know and appreciate your classics. Someday you too can have a successful career getting knocked out by a bull. And kicking the balls. And by the way, I just want to give a little bit of props to uh, Bam Margera because we did talk about him, but a lot of people did hit us in the fact that we were not really talking about the importance of CKY, which was the video series that Bam did with his band before Jackass, which was very much an influential part of Jackass. They brought their guys into the Jackass fold. Some of the bits they did in the first movie are like redos of CKY bits. So um, the the whole part of the puzzle here is, I think, you know, love it, leave it, whatever you want to do. You can't not acknowledge that he was a major part of how this whole thing came together. But I am still happy he wasn't in the last one. He was in the marching band scene. I mean, for one second in the marching band, yeah. Um, All right. Well, Amy, uh, enough about Jackass. Enough about the contenders. Are you ready? Because here's Unspooled. The year is 1980. It's the first and last year a Grammy is awarded to Best Disco Recording. And it went to Gloria Gaynor for I Will Survive. Wow. One year. John Lennon is killed by Mark David Chapman, and John Wayne Gacy is sentenced to death. The first one gig hard drive is produced, and it costs, check this out, $40,000, and it weighs 500. 
hundred pounds. That's one gig, a one oh gig hard God. drive. You 40. could buy two houses for that in 1980. <laughs> um, and also hitting the shelves for the first time uh, is the Rubik's Cube, Post-it Notes, and people in the arcades were playing Pac-Man. The popular movies were Raging Bull, Empire Strikes Back, Airplane, and today's film, The Shining. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Give me all the details, and especially what was on the radio. The Shining. It is directed by Stanley Kubrick from a script by himself and gothic novelist Diane Johnson. Based, of course, on the Stephen King best-selling novel, it has a very simple story. A struggling writer named Jack takes a job watching a giant old hotel, The Overlook, in Colorado. He's got to do it over the winter. He brings his younger wife, Wendy, and their son, Danny. Danny can see things, things that will happen, things that have happened, and there are a lot of awful things to see at the Overlook. You've got murdered twins holding hands, old women in bathtubs who try to strangle you, elevators full of blood, men in dog costumes who are, let's say, surfacing other men in tuxedos, and a hint, maybe a hint for uh, for Danny, a little warning that his dad, Jack, might go crazy and try to kill his family, which he does. Jack is, of course, Jack Nicholson, Danny is Danny Lloyd, and Wendy is the very brave Shelley Duvall. There's also Scatman Crothers as the Overlook's cook, the only person who really understands Danny's powers and can telepathically communicate with him all the way down in Florida where it's much, much warmer. Take a listen. Do you like this hotel? Yeah. I do. I love it. Don't you? say that to you? That I would hurt you? No, Dad. You sure? Yes, Dad. The Shining was released on May 23rd, 1980 and made a ton of money, even though Stephen King himself famously hated it for reasons we shall dig into. What was in the zeitgeist that weekend? Well, there was a major hit from Blondie, a person I love quite deeply. And I like to imagine that this hit from Blondie is about the bond between Danny and Scatman. It is, of course, Call Me. I love a music video by Blondie for The Shining. Now that's all I want to see. Just Scatman and Danny popping around. Um... <laughs> You know, Amy, I think rewatching this film, something really struck me last night, which was as I get older, I like Kubrick films a lot more, or I think I see them as much more complex than I have initially seen them. And that's not saying like, oh, it takes me a couple of times to, you know, really see all the detail. But I think the, the themes resonate. I think that the 
that in addition to just being a fantastically shot and really well-acted film, there are some really complex themes about humanity in these movies. And it just hits me in a totally different way. Every single time that we've watched one since we started the show, all these movies I've seen, and they all have just gotten me in a way that I'm always surprised by. You're not sliding down the path of starring in the documentary room 237, are you? No, I have some thoughts on the documentary 237, and I have my own insane theories that I'm going to release to you in a little bit. But uh, well, let's let people know that this is actually something that people talk about a lot, that The Shining was Kubrick's apology or confession for faking the moon landing. Yeah, actually, here's somebody explaining it using numerology, a very important thing to Kubrick, you know, uh, an analysis. And I will say one important fact to know before you hear this clip that kind of analyzes Kubrick and the moon landing is that, you know, the hotel in the book, the room where all of the hauntings, the bathtub lady and everything was supposed to take place, was called room 217. For the movie, Kubrick changed it to room 237. And that change, of course, as everybody's heart's aflutter. Kubrick's excuse was he said that the hotel where this was based, where the out, where the exterior was, already had a room 217. And they were worried that if they used the actual number of room that they actually had, nobody would want to sleep in that room forevermore. So they made Kubrick change the number. However, here is a different theory about why he changed it to 237. The moon, the standard science textbook said, and they still say, but now with lasers, we've gotten a little better reading, but uh, is, is that the mean distance of the moon from the earth is exactly 237,000 miles. So he changed that so that you would understand that this was the moon room. So Danny stands up, he's got the Apollo 11 sweater on. He begins walking down the hallway towards room 237 and there's a key in the lock and on the key are is the words room and then the word N-O, which is an old uh, acronym for number, so room number 237, except that the only capital letters on the key are R-O-O-M and then the N from the acronym N-O, and if there's only two words that you can come up with that have those letters in them, and that's moon and room. And so on the key, the tag, it says moon room. And that is the moon room. This is where everything happens and none of it's real. And it all has to be lied about. And you can't let anyone know what's really going on in room 237. All right. Now, Amy, technically that is wrong because the distance to the moon is 238. Wait, really? Yes. Uh, So this is one of those weird things that people start to like get into. And then it was debunked recently that uh, the distance is actually uh, 238. But but wait, wait, wait. I mean, maybe we just got better at measuring and Kubrick thought it was 237 at the time. If he's faking the moon landing, I think he would understand distance. We're not we didn't get like better rulers. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have to say, I love this documentary. I mean, I love all of Rodney Asher's documentaries. We've mm-hmm. played a clip of them before. We played a clip when we were talking about The Matrix. He's the one who did the right. documentary on like violence in The Matrix. And I just, I love that he makes the doc- documentaries where you're not supposed to believe everything you hear. You're just supposed to think about it. He makes critical documentaries, not ones that are like, you know, polluting is bad, but like, let's really chew on some ideas. You know, I like an open ended film. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that this movie is full of very big ideas that are out there and you can take them or leave them. And I think one of the reasons why this film is so successful is because you don't really have to deal with any of the larger themes. You can just basically go in and go, this is a movie about a haunted hotel that possesses the guy who's supposed to take it over and he goes crazy and tries to kill his family. Like, Done and done. Like, easy peasy. You're in, you're out. It's amazing. Great performances. But Exactly. And I think almost that open-endedness, that lack of, like, easy resolutions is what makes it so haunting. You know, that there are things in this movie that you can't explain, things that don't make sense, things that, you know, lesser people on YouTube might be like, what a failure. What a flop. You just weren't thinking about that. Like, oh, no, there's no way the ballroom could fit in this hotel. That doesn't make any sense. And blah, blah, blah. Look at the windows. And Kubrick is like, it is a ghost film. I'm not explaining it to anybody. I don't need to explain it to anybody. If you try to explain something that you don't understand, you fall on your face. And he left all of these like dangling, confusing threads. And to me, not answering it makes the film so much more creepy, so much more fun to watch. I mean, I I feel like if we made this film today, you'd have to have a flashback to like, you know, Jack's own childhood and his dad being mean to him or some awful, well, boring, by the way, dramatic that, backstory nonsense. That's part of the book. I mean, part yeah. of the book is this backstory for for Jack and what he has been through and his like PTSD. Uh, there's a lot there. And obviously, this is the reason why Stephen King doesn't like the movie, because first of all, he doesn't like the casting. He doesn't like that Jack Nicholson is Jack. Because Jack, in his mind, was based on himself. Stephen King went to this hotel that was closing down for the winter and got this idea and started writing it and saw himself as the character. And he saw himself as a normal guy. And he felt like Jack Nicholson is a guy who comes in a little bit wild-eyed, a little bit, uh, you know, not broken, but, you know, on edge. And the same thing with Shelley Duvall. He saw Shelley Duvall's character as like a former cheerleader and who'd never experienced any pain or problems in her life. And when he saw her in the film, he's like, well, she she's too emotionally damaged. So he just from the outset didn't like the way his story is being told by the two lead characters. Yeah, um, like he pictured himself being played by Christopher Reeve. Like that would have been his ideal. Like he wanted somebody like Christopher Reeve. I think Martin Sheen was on his shortlist, John mm-hmm. Voight. Somebody who would come in being like, I'm a normal American everyman, you know, and watch me go crazy. Won't it be worse watching me go crazy? And he was like, when you have Jack Nicholson in this movie, I mean, he was just in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Like you see Jack Nicholson in the movie, you know that he's crazy. So he argued that Jack Torrance doesn't have an arc in the movie. He just gets, he goes like crazier and crazier and crazier. And he said to me, that takes away the tragedy. There's no tragedy in it if there's no real change in him. Well, I think what's interesting ultimately is what pushes someone over the edge, right? Because he is able to function, right? This probably wouldn't happen if he didn't go here to this hotel, right? He might be a miserable person who has some contempt for his wife and have anger issues and and be fighting this alcoholism, but what is the thing that breaks him? And, And in many ways, that's really interesting too. Like how many people are we surrounded by in life where they just need that little push and then we get this? You know, it's like this idea that over the course of a month, you would go in completely insane. Almost feels to me a little bit more like a Hollywood movie. Whereas if you have these issues and the right buttons are pressed, you could become this person. You know, and I guess it takes away the idea of it could happen to anyone. 
But I also think it actually makes it a lot more personal. It makes it a, a more interesting story. Yeah, because I mean, I guess the one thing that really shifts is if you love the Stephen King point of view, then the emphasis is kind of on the house. The house right. driving the house somebody made them do crazy. It. Yeah. But if you like, if you follow the Kubrick version, then the emphasis is on, you know, is on Jack. Like, what if you married a guy who was dangerous and then he was able to really let loose in a place where he could dominate, you well, know, where you couldn't go out for help? And, and I mean, I, I want to just like examine this too, because the core conceit of the movie is someone who has decided to take over an empty hotel for five months, to be completely isolated, right? That is not something that I think a healthy person would opt to do, right? To be like, I'm going to cut myself off. It gets forced on you. It gets right. forced on you when well, there's right. a pandemic, but <laughs> you don't right. choose it. And, but that's what I'm saying. Like this idea that he even wants to do it, like he revels in it. Like, oh, I can't wait to get some peace and quiet. Like, I don't think anyone in their right mind would do it. So in a weird way, what Kubrick does is gives us a person that would be willing to take that job. Right. And it's there is something there. Um, Yeah. And and I want to play that scene where they're talking about the isolation, because what I found notable rewatching it this time was paying attention to Jack's performance in particular, because I've always felt that I can kind of get King's point in a bit. Like he comes in very big. He's very big in pretty much every scene, you know, Um, especially from like the hour and a half point on. He's just like big, 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 big. And there's something in his bigness that I'm trying, that I'm like learning to find more compelling in that, like, I'm watching his character as a put on. And what you see in that famous Jack Nicholson smile, that like crazy demented smile that he like uses in this whole time in the scene with like the men is that he's using this smile as like charm. Like he really believes that that smile makes him charming. The only time you see this Jack Nicholson character be nice to people in a way that's like he's trying to charm them is when they're other men, you know, other men he could get a job for. The way he smiles in here, he immediately doesn't smile like that to his wife, like a beat later when they're in a car. He never gives her that smile. He only does it when he's buddy-buddying up with his bros. And you can hear that smile in his voice in the scene. Physically, it's, it's not a very demanding job. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is a uh, tremendous sense of isolation. Well, that just happens to be exactly what I'm looking for. I'm, uh, I'm outlining a new writing project, and uh, five months of peace is just what I want. That's very good, Jack. Because uh, for some people, uh, solitude and isolation can of itself become a problem. Not for me. How about your wife and son? How do you think they'll take to it? They'll love it. Right. First of all, I have so much to say. I want to just call out the performance of Ullman, Barry Nelson, who, uh, if you're a Thin Man fan, he was in uh, The Shadow of the Thin Man in movies like Airport. I love this character. And as a matter of fact, this character was in a deleted scene that Kubrick shot. The movie ended with Shelley Duvall escaping with her son. And you cut to the hospital and they're in the bed. And this character comes back and basically says, oh, we didn't see anything there. There's nothing bizarre. Like, basically, this man is in on it, too. Like, this man is the gatekeeper, letting them, um, basically setting up people to be 
you know, taken advantage of by the ghosts, almost like a almost like a madam for the ghosts. Like he is bringing in the this fresh blood for whatever reason. And that ending is interesting as well, because I, I like that idea. I think the, oh, like he's hiring. He's hiring for the undead waiter world of the hotel. Yes. You kill I think your family. You become the butler in the afterlife. He's like. I hire I, the people in real life, and I also have to hire the undead butler by hiring well, people who become the undead butler. I think, well, I think what it is, is I think he is giving a sacrifice to this larger world. And I want to get into my theory on that, but I also want to hit something that you just talked about, because I think it's important to talk about it right now. You just said that you feel that Jack Nicholson gives a smile when he's around men. And I have a theory, and it's a theory that I also have seen online, so I'm not going to say it's my own theory, but that Jack Nicholson's character is gay, and he is in an incestuous relationship with his son, and that's the damage that happens in the beginning of the movie. And not this, oh, he got mad because papers were around. That's the story that they're telling everybody. Oh, he got mad. And I have a, a, a couple of ways to talk about that. But I'll first say one of the interesting things is when he is waiting for the tour around the hotel and Ullman approaches him, what is he reading? A Playgirl. He's reading a Playgirl magazine that was from the time. And on the cover is an article about incest. This is true. All true. You can look at it. But he is reading a Playgirl. And I can't think about Kubrick just being like, oh, yeah, he just grabbed that. Like, we didn't have that. Like, what what is that doing in the lobby? What is that there? And I think to talk larger about the sexual abuse of it all, I can get into it. But I just want to kind of see what you think on that first lob. <laughs> I mean, I definitely think the Playgirl is deliberate. I mean, I have no idea exactly why. I mean, like, a, a different theory is that, like, when you really freeze frame that that the image of the cover, the other article on the cover has the title, Interview. The selling of David's soul, you know, from Starsky and Hutch. Oh, interesting. And I feel like there's also that in this movie too, because there's yes. a moment when uh, when Jack Nicholson is, feels like his wife is accusing him unjustly of beating up his son. He's been sober the whole movie. He goes into the empty bar, and I, I love this scene. Like he goes into the empty bar, he is broken. He looks at all of like the bare beer bottles because they said like they couldn't have alcohol in there for insurance reasons. And he mumbles quietly, I would give anything for a drink. I would sell my soul. You can hear it. Yes. My goddamn soul. Just a glass of beer. And what I love about that monologue is that he's like so low, he puts his hands over his face. And then when he takes them away, for the first time, he's looking right at the camera. He's looking right at you. And that is when he enters and fully sees like the dream ghost world for the first time. That's well, okay. the moment that he breaks. Yes. And I rewatched that scene five times because you talked about his big performance there, right? It's a very big performance. Like when he's like, oh, I made a mistake and here I am. And it's like, it's almost a uh, caricature in a way. Like, yeah. and I was like, what is going on here? Like, um, and I'm realizing he's looking at himself in the mirror, he has gone through the looking glass. Like this idea, like when we first see him earlier in the film, when he wakes up at 11, 11.30, like clearly he's starting to have this like energy of being a little bit depressed. When he wakes up, the first thing he does, we see him through the mirror and he kind of looks at himself and sticks out his tongue. 
right? And and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, and then yeah. when I think about that moment, yeah, he's it's just a whole looking scene at that's a, in backwards, and you almost don't know because you can barely see the mirror. You're sort of surprised when yes. you realize it's been a mirror shot the whole time. And so I think he is, you know, obviously Ooh, this is another mirror shot. Sorry, just I was just thinking of force majeure. I was like, what, Ooh, yeah. what parallels? Okay, yeah. So anyway, no, I no. So I think that like some of the large performance is him in front of the mirror, because there's also this great scene where he's walking to that ballroom right before he has that monologue. And um, or maybe it's hmm, I'm trying to think. I know it's in the film, but he's walking down this big hallway and every time he hits a mirror, his performance gets bigger and then he drops. Then it gets bigger. And then he drops Whoa. and he gets bigger and he drops and it does it like four times in a row because there's like a mirror, then the little wall, mirror, then the little wall. And it's like, so Ooh. this idea of like him performing for this mirror, putting on this show was really interesting. And I think well, to that's go like further. Well, it's like the visual equi- equivalent of like the way that when the little kid rides on his, t- on his tricycle, it's mm. like loud, 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 loud wood, yeah. soft carpet. Like that, that doesn't feel accidental to me. That's that same rhythm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that this movie does an amazing job of putting you on edge immediately. The opening sequence of the film, it feels like an IMAX movie where you're supposed to be like flying. Like there's this like this unsettling nature where yeah. it's the music, it's the voices. Soaring over Colorado. It makes you feel. Can you I smell think it, this yeah. bit of blood. It really does. It feels like a Disney ride. And there's something about it. Like this entire movie is about like pushing in motion and and this uncontrollable motion. I mean, there's amazing dolly shots in this movie that are just exquisite as you know, and they're just but you're constantly being led. You're just being, you know, you're being pulled around. So I do think this idea of like um, creating that rhythm. But I do want to Sometimes It's like steady, but sometimes it's like when you enter, say, like the hiring room for the first time, it's like also wobbly. Like it's kind of moving like you're on a ship. There's something really uneasy about it. Absolutely. And and I I will say that uh, to go back to your idea of selling the soul, when Nicholson asks the bartender, like, who's paying for his drinks? He's like, well, it's not for you to worry about right now. And the idea being, you know, is this the devil? This is the person he sold his soul to. This is the, like, this is the agreement that he made. Like, this is, this is all part of the larger plan. And there's a lot. The house is the devil or whatever you want to call it. Or like, I mean, but but it's also just terrifying. Like, even if there was no haunted house, have you ever had or known anyone who did that thing where they were mean to you, but really nice to anybody they'd know for 30 seconds or less? Like a waiter or like a checkout person. Oh, yeah. Person. Oh, absolutely. I think like, that, that that idea of like keeping up appearances. Well, I yeah, think. Yeah, I've had a couple of people in that life, um, including like my terrible grandpa. And like it, like the Jack Nicholson in this, I watch a lot of Jack, Jack Nicholson movies and see my grandpa, which is terrifying. Like when I oh watched about Schmidt, I was like, oh, it's my grandpa's movie. Like, okay, oh, wow. you made a movie about my grandpa. I get it. The bartender stuff here just exactly reminds me of like the last time my grandpa came to visit before he passed. We went to like a waiter and he's just like, grouch, 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 grouch. Hello. How's the tuna melt? And I'm like, how, how, how does anybody go through life like this? And so, you know, haunted house or not, like this performance scares everything from me. I think it's so terrifying. Well, I think there's an idea that is here in this movie. And again, to go back to the idea of the mother, son and father relationship 
he says something there. He has contempt for his wife. We see the contempt for his wife, but he does say, I would never harm Danny. I would never harm Danny. Um, kind of back to Fargo. Like I would never, don't worry. The grandson's taken care of like that idea. Like you're not, but the grandson is, um, I guess what I'm thinking about is he can do that. And Shelley Duvall is clearly from moment one being crushed under the weight of that. Like, keeping up appearances. Like the minute we see her, and I know it's the 80s, early 80s, late 70s, she's smoking that cigarette right in front of her kid. Maybe that is something that you did, but it did seem like very unaware. Like her kid is eating a sandwich and she's like smoking right in his face. I noticed um, that too. And I wasn't sure if that was just like how it was or not. Right. I but it, but it, it definitely pops out now. You're just like, she, yeah. And, and I don't want to like, offer the cigarette to people and they say no. So it does. Yeah. Like she offers it to the, to the doctor and the doctor is like, no, thank you. So it she, is, she does smoke more than other people in the language of the film. Yeah. She definitely feels off from moment yeah. one, like that she's covering, like there is something wrong. Right. She is not, I, she's not happy. She seems afraid. Um, and I think that, you know, even when she tells that story about him stopping drinking, you're expecting her to say like, and he hasn't had a drink for 10 years. And it's like, he hasn't had a drink for five months. Once she says five months, I'm like, ooh boy. Like it's, 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 it's like, not, this is not like, you know, you're talking about it like, oh, we're cured, we're good. It's like, it, it seems real, real fresh. Uh, he dislocated his shoulder? How did he manage to do that? Well, it was just one of those things, you know, purely an accident. Uh, my husband had uh, been drinking and he came home about three hours late. So he wasn't exactly in the greatest mood that night. And, well, Danny had scattered some of his school papers all over the room, and my husband grabbed his arm, you know, to pull him away from him. It's, it's just the sort of thing you do a hundred times with a child, you know, in the park or in the streets. But on this particular occasion, my husband just used too much strength, and he injured Danny's arm. Anyway, something good did come out of it all because he said, uh, Wendy, I'm never going to touch another drop. And if I do, you can leave me. And he didn't. And he hasn't had any alcohol in uh, five months. No, it does. And and I think like also um, the age disparity, you know, like sometimes you have a couple in a movie and it's just sort of like the director thought this woman was hot. So he's not even thinking about the fact that these right. people are like visibly what I think they're like. 12 years apart when they made oh, wow. this movie in age. I feel like the age disparity here feels pointed. You know, she just comes across younger. She dresses like a kid. She's wearing like those big pinafores all the time and stuff and like wearing matching tights and things. Like she doesn't dress like a grown adult necessarily. Well, this is again. So let me talk about the sexual abuse of it all. And uh, again, a trigger warning for anyone there. I'm I, I'm just going to talk about some general things, but I, I think, uh, I think there are some things that are interesting, right? And you talked about in your description of the movie, the bear, right? A bear going down on another person in the hotel. Oh, is it a bear? I thought it was a dog. Oh, okay. Um, I think it's a, it looks to me like a weird, like a 1920s bear face. Like, I mean, again, we're talking about like old timey costumes. So it's not like 
present day uh, plushies. Um, so if there a, are any furries who really feel like they know, please let us know. Please let us know if that's not a 1920 dog suit or a 1920 bear suit. Because um, we do want to get to the bottom of that, too. This show is about getting to the bottom of the important stuff. Okay, but actually, I did read a little bit of that scene. And there is like a whole backstory to that, by the way. Okay. To that image. Um Basically, wait. The can, man- we, can I can I give you my oh, sure. theory, and then you can then you can shoot it down. I'll give you, but only because oh, I because yeah. then I will have a harder time I selling it. it if you guys, I'll be like, bang bang, your theory. No, okay. I've got an X. Okay. All right. So I want to think back to that scene, the the blowjob scene, and I want to think back to this moment where Danny first has that interaction in the mirror where he's brushing his teeth. Right. Both mm-hmm. shots are exactly the same. They are through a door, from a distance, down a hallway, and you like they are exactly the same shot. So you see a little bit of an image and a little bit of an image. And then, so that's, I think, drawing the parallel. When Danny is um, being examined by the doctor, he is on a bare blanket. All right. So um, there is something going like, all right. So there's a connection to the bear. There's there. And there's something else interesting. This is a small detail, but I'll bring it up because I saw it online and I'm just repeating what somebody else figured out. But there is a dopey on the door uh, from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, there's a yeah. uh, there's a dopey on the door. But once he has that first moment where he sees blood and he sees the girls and he has that first flashback in the when he has that panic attack, the dopey is gone. What? And yes, the dopey disappears. And the idea being like, maybe that's his loss of innocence in that moment. But this, uh, but so... What when about I look the goofy, there's a goofy Marion. There's a goofy there's, there, but I wait, mean, yeah, wait, the, wait, the, is Goofy a dog or a cow? Now I'm trying well, to tie now, it all again. In. Please, people, write in, get on the Discord, Discord.gg/slash/paulshear, and you can get to the the unspooled section. Anyway, the, I think by the way, it's like Goofy's birthday this year. I think I just looked this up. Oh it's really? Like, yeah, I think I think it's like an anniversary of Goofy's. There's some very good Goofy yeah. shorts on Disney Plus uh, that like are 95th, all pandemic based. Eighty five. Um, <laughs> All right, so there. I love that in our uh, talk about sexual abuse, we've we've really gone into some deep goofy lore. Um, oh, no. All right, so Goofy's birthday is 1932, May 25th, 1932. Um, so uh, it is. Uh, this is definitely a uh, oh, 82. Really? Yeah. Oh, so it's what his 90th birthday? Yeah, 90th. Oh, you know, my birthday, birthday is May, May 24th, and my dad's nickname for me was Goofy. He's a Gemini. So it's all coming full circle. Yeah. All, all those right. people are Geminis. I guess what I'm thinking is there's some interesting parallels there. And I and I know you're going to give me the backstory of the bear, but I thought like visually, and I know that there's more in the book about these characters, but that idea that the way that she is, like it doesn't seem to me that there's an isolated incident. The reason why she has contempt, the reason why she doesn't like let him off the hook, if she caught him doing this, I mean, again, Playgirl magazine, friendly with more friendly with men than women, has said I would never hurt my son. You know, um, she caught him doing this thing. Um, the way that he has examined this, the the idea of the imagery there, it's at least worthy of going. We don't know what the truth is, and look, we don't have that scene where, where you know. We only know how they're presenting to the outside world. And they're trying to present like the right way. Like, oh, it was just this. It was just an accident. Like she doesn't say to him in the movie, are you drinking again? Or you did, you know, like um, she doesn't do any of that. She doesn't accuse him of that. But I do think she is afraid of him. 
uh, when his sweater is ripped. There is something about it, and it seems to me that they have no sex life to speak of or no no connection sexually. Now, obviously, he does go after that woman who comes out of the bathtub, but I do think it's interesting that maybe something there is interesting because that image is so specific. Like, why is there this bear giving a blowjob to a guy in a room? And that's obviously only seen through Shelley Duvall. And I think that's the moment where we realize that Shelley Duvall is now also seeing how possessed the hotel is. Yeah, the, literally but, the first ghost she sees is the only ghost that nobody else sees. Yeah, and I and I just think it's like, it's not a costume party. It's not like, you know, it's, 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 it's out of, I don't know. There's something about it. The, the imagery was interesting, and I think that's the fun of Kubrick. But all right, so now you could tell me if you disagree, but also tell me what the, the backstory of the bear is. Well, I'll agree with a few things. I do agree that I feel like this family is very invested in keeping up appearances. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, first, the backstory. The man on the bed in the tuxedo is the original owner of the hotel. That's who that's supposed to be. And that the original yes. owner of the hotel had... Kind of like a guy that he treated more or less like his sex slave or like a fuck buddy, like a guy that he really bossed around. And he made that guy dress like a dog in the book. I think it's a dog and humiliate himself for his enjoyment. And it was like several pages about this, but you just kind of get it across in the one shot here. You know, man, man in dog costume on knees, man in tuxedo with all the power. And you get the shape of that dynamic, even if you don't consciously know that that's the owner of the hotel. I will agree with you that I think this family feels very interested in keeping up appearances, which I found interesting because I think we've had a couple of touchstones in this cold series that have really started to come together for me. Like families keeping up appearances being like a major one. I mean, think about this family next to the Force Majeure family. In one movie, Force Majeure, you have like a perfect looking couple, you know, who look like catalog models who go to a snowbound resort and expose the cracks in their marriage, but try desperately to like keep it all upright. And in this movie, you have a couple who looks really fragile and broken and destructive from the beginning, but also going to their like snowbound hotel and all of the cracks in their marriage start to appear. And I think that, you know, one kind of interesting thing that they that the wives especially both have in common is how much they're desperately trying to act like everything is fine. You know, Mm -hmm. you hear that in Shelly. She's always just like, it's okay. She's making tea. She's getting breakfast. You know, she's trying to be the best wife possible. Even when when they see that hotel room, when you see that hotel room for the first time and and she's like, oh, it's nice. I couldn't tell. Were they excited about that hotel room or were they let down like that? Their quarters. I couldn't quite tell. I was like, I, was I like, think he hates it. He's like, okay. the way he says it's homey. He makes yeah. homey an insult. Homey is an yeah. insult in his mouth. He hates yeah. it. You know, it just seems weird that yeah. they're in this giant hotel and the, their bedroom is like shared with a kitchen. Like that's such a New York kind of like small apartment thing. And it just feels like, oh, wow. Like now you're just like, it just yeah. felt like. You were really in the servants' quarters. Like you, you have the run of this entire thing, and it just felt like I don't know. There's something interesting about it, yeah. but yeah, they're trying to the make the kids' room is separated by a curtain, even like so yeah. they have no privacy in there at all. Like if you thought they weren't already like physically intimate, they're definitely not going to be. Oh, now. by the way, there's a bear on the kids' wall. There's a picture <laughs> of a bear on the kids' wall. And I mean, I think it's interesting that like Kubrick doesn't show us any scenes of them ever being nice. You know, like you don't get any scene ever of Jack Nicholson being like sweet and loving well, to his wife. But you, but you do get it with his son. Remember when his son yeah. comes into the room and it's creepy as fuck, but like he's kind of holding him and he's saying like, it's okay. It's, you know, I'm going to take care of you. Like there is something, look, like the, the drive to the, to the, the hotel, the Overlook Hotel is you get everything you need to know about that family in that drive. Like they're not hiding anything in that drive. Like there's no one to put on a appearances for. 
Um, no. And, and most he's of the like time, cranky and he's checked yeah. out and he's not interested in them. And like when his son is hungry, he's like, well, you should have thought about it. He's got like the tough love approach. Yeah. And there's nothing and the and the family is very separate in the hotel. They're never really together. I mean, there's moments with, uh, you know, obviously the, you know, Shelley Duvall and the son, like they go through the maze and they they do some little things. But each one of them is having their own little journey in this hotel, this giant hotel. Yeah. There's no like awkward family dinner or something. Right. Which feels like a really obvious scene to put in. Awkward family. The first night, awkward family dinner. Yes. With a giant can of fruit cocktail. My God, can you imagine the pressure of opening up a canned good there being like, I guess I have to eat all of this fruit cocktail before it goes bad. What, does, is fruit cocktail still around? Do people still eat that? Oh, yeah, there's definitely canned fruit. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I was but actually like working that, at You know a, what I mean? Where it's like the one maraschino cherry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly. I mean, I just worked at a food bank and they, they, they had a lot of canned fruits and vegetables. Everything's out there. Really? I mean, it's a, and by the way, you can get that as like a little thing that you put in a lunchbox too, like a little fruit cup. Really? Mm-hmm. I kind of want one now. Like seeing yeah. that giant can of fruit cocktail made me think of all the times that we had fruit cocktail when I was a little kid with like my mom would put like a biscuit on top of it and it was a dessert. The thing that got me freaked out about that kitchen when they're walking around with Scatman Crothers uh, is like, oh God, look at this lamb shank. Like, whew, I'd, have re- I'd, I'd need Google. I'd need to really get in there to figure out how to it's it's so big. It's like, she's really got to <laughs> like, I mean, you got to really be like a chef. Like there's nothing about that like what yes they have a lot of things but my god like that's a really tricky uh a tricky thing i mean i want to know what they're going to do with those giant cans of minced clams or like there's those other cans that are just called chicken meat yeah and by the way i love that there's some things that shelly duvall even says in that kind of sequence when they're getting the tour from scatman she says at one point this place is a maze which feels very like much foreshadowing for the end and then another point she says it's just like a ghost ship you know, she oh, kind of yeah. just mutters well, it in passing. She, it's like she's I mean, just she, cluing into some vibe. I mean, the movie is so brilliant in the way that, I mean, I, we haven't even really spoken about how it's shot besides saying like these tracking shots, but the movie like unfolds perfectly. It is, it is almost Hitchcockian in the way that it says, all right, this is everything that you're, here's all the locations and here's a taste of what you're going to see eventually because they walk through and, you know, when they walk through the grand ballroom, you know, Shelley Duvall's like, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be great to have a drink here? Wouldn't it be amazing? Like, and then later on, they have a drink there. They tell you everything. They show you every piece that will be used later on. It's you it's mean like so- Titanic does? There you go. Look, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I would agree that James Cameron steals from the best. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, and I, I think James Cameron is great. Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can, or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinus. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th 
anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do. And Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. That's right, Ruba. They should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Ruba, go do. Yes, Ruba, go do. Ruba, go do. That's right, Ruba, go do. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations. I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I do want to talk about this other thing because we're talking about like the walkthrough in the beginning that I think is another bar, a big th- theme of this movie, just to throw it out there, which is the one thing that they say early on, which I never really caught or thought about until this watch, which was this hotel is built on an Indian burial ground. Mm-hmm. And I never really caught that, thought about that. And this idea thematically was really interesting to me. Like this idea of... Okay, we are. This is the this is going back to the idea of, of the uh, the hotel clerk, the guy who interviews uh, Jack, being this madam for ghosts. Like this is the blood sacrifice that he's giving to these to these Native Americans who are cursing the hotel. Because I do think thematically, there is something about the white man colonizing, and this is the payback that they have because you see that they they co-opt Indian culture throughout the entire hotel, Uh, whether it's like images on walls, whether it's artwork, you know, whatever it is. The the baking soda in the pantry, the Kalina baking soda as a chieftain as its mascot. I mean, literally the 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 portrait that's right outside Ullman's door is another, you know, a piece of Native American art. And um, so this idea of thematically, is this a story about, you know, the white man getting revenge on the white man because there is that line in the scene where he gets the drink or he goes, ah, the white man's burden, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, oh, well, you know, this is interesting. Like this is, again, I think that is something, whether or not it's like the main thrust, I do think that that's a theme that he's exploring here. Like, and it's very subtle and it's very small. And I think it's actually very clever that it's not, um, like there aren't just a bunch of Native Americans running around this hotel like that. The imagery is different. Like it's 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 possessing the people there. It's 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 locking the people there. It's it's it's, you know, they are living they're They're keeping them trapped in this hellscape in a way like, you know, and uh, I mean, I'd love to know the history of that idea of ground being cursed. Because it was, mm-hmm. you know, like a quote unquote Indian burial ground. Like when did that even show up? Because what that's here. It's in Poltergeist, right? Mm. I think, I mean, I wonder how far back does that go? The Shiny didn't come up with it, right? It existed before then? I don't know. I mean, that's the thing that you always think about. Like, I mean, you always hear like, oh, it built on an Indian burial ground. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, and. I uh, tell people that about some bars in LA that I think are like cursed. 
And sometimes people believe me, the 4100. Um, you think that's cursed? Every time my friends have gone there, especially in our 20s, terrible things happened. Wow. I know. Okay, interesting. Well, But that's uh, just me. That's just, you know, ignore me. Ignore all right. me. But all right, you well, can really easily get people to believe that. Would you like an answer about the Indian burial ground situation? Yeah, please. Yes. Just, yeah, yes, come, we would. come on. And this is Devin, our audio engineer who knows a lot about uh, Indian burial grounds. Go ahead. I'm looking it up and it's, it, it is contemporary. It, the first appearance of it, according to a couple things I just found, is in the novel version of the Amityville Horror. Okay. Oh, oh right. Which is 1977. So just before this. But actually, maybe after the book, The Shining, isn't it? Because The Shining, the book is maybe 75. Right. Because this movie is 80. Oh. So, yeah, it's right. Yeah. So that's interesting. It, it's uh, oh, no, actually, weirdly, Shining came out in 77 also. So it's like a photo finish for which of these came up with it first, The Shining or Amityville Horror. Oh, I wonder. But, you know, they're both they both come out a year after the bicentennial. The bicentennial. I wonder if there's some sort of like history of America thing happening in the I think so. Yes. Well, and I, I think again, to can continue this idea of like the colonization i think that that image of jack looking over the maze in the hotel is like this idea of like the white man looking over the field like you know overseeing like this is you know obviously it's a model but i think the imagery here is yeah he kind of looks to me i was like oh he looks like zeus or some sort of giant god but then i got distracted by the fact that the maze changes they see the map then you see the model, those two fit. But then when you go back to the people in the maze, it's like a much more complicated and crazy and elaborate maze than it ever was before. Mm. It like it's even more labyrinthine. And it, it who knows why? Who knows how? It's one of those things that I think Kubrick just lets us chew on. Well, I think it's also like it's not as cut and dry. Like I think a, a worse filmmaker would be like, okay, it's buried in an Indian burial ground, like Will, or a Native American burial ground, and 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 all of a sudden, uh, you know, these images happen. Now I will tell you that the, one of the best ghost stories I've ever heard in my entire life uh, was from a friend who uh, had grown up in Arizona, and they had this thing that people in the house had seen which was a Native American man on a horse standing in the middle of their living room. And the way I'm doing a very compact version of the way that he tells the story, but the way that he tells the story is that they had moved some artwork that was in the house that they originally had built. And when they put that artwork back, it was, it was a Native American artwork. They put it back on the wall. It stopped. And this idea of, I mean, this, I mean, I'm drawing two, and I told a very, uh, a very like quick version of it, but the idea being like, they have, you've disrupted the world and like they are now there. And I think that that is something interesting. Uh, And Raven brings up a good point here too, that the photo at the end is the July 4th ball, which is this idea of like, uh, you know, uh, contributing to a history of colonization, you know, like it's like this, you know, uh, the 4th of July is, you know, that I think that that's a... I don't know. Some interesting ideas that I think, again, this is like the fun of the movie that you can kind of dig in here and you go, yeah, yeah, he just goes crazy. But it's so much more rich to look at that theme. And I think that theme is actually truly there. Maybe it is just like the kind of force measure of it all that we just saw it. But I really love kind of putting these two movies back to back because, you know, not only does the wife here try so hard to keep everything together, just like the wife there. I was really thinking about how, you know, kind of the images of masculinity that like yeah. that husband was trying to live up to in force majeure that seemed to be like the major thrust of Jack Nicholson here. 
you know, like I've got it. I can do this. People take care of me. Like he, you know, not only does he try to bond with other men by being like a real misogynist jerk, like calling his wife a sperm bank at one point, mm-hmm. you know, what he does when he has these scenes with like the former co- caretaker with Delbert Grady is he's basically like taking advice. By on the how way, to be- that's not the former caretaker because the, the or the one who murdered his wife, different, la- same last name. Different, but first, different name. first name, but he yeah. kind of also cops to killing his twins. To me, that just feels like one of the weird mysteries. But, like, but I yeah, also think it's like yeah. this, this idea that like, here's my other theory. Like, will he be a Grady? Is everyone a Grady? Like, you know, is it like this idea that like you are constantly like, you know, you are oh, maybe Jack Grady or something. Yes. Because they like say it was I- like Charles Grady who killed the twins. But then this guy, Dilbert Grady is like, well, I had to correct them. They tried to burn the house down. Yes. It's and like he- this idea that like they are like these people are cursed to this existence of like reliving this over and over and over again. You know? Yeah. But it is also like he's really broken. He feels unjustly accused of, you know, beating up his son and the person he turns to for advice is like a, you know, he comes in as like a servile person. He's drinking this drink. But I was like, what on earth is a yellow cocktail that can stick to you like that? So I looked it up. It's Advocat. It's Advocat. It's oh. like a, yeah, it's like Advocat with like two A's. And it's kind of like an eggnog that doesn't have milk. It's just Ooh, egg yolk, sugar, that. and brandy. It's almost like you're drinking a pudding is kind of what it is. And that's why it doesn't like move. It, it seems like the most unhealthy thing on earth that I definitely want to try. Oh but anyways, gosh. like- yeah, he I'll comes in, he's like yeah. Jeeves, he's slapping him on the back, blah, 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 blah. And and then this character, Delbert, reveals himself to be just like the most old school, antiquated, patriarchal, you know, piece. Like he uses the horrible words. He like talks about his wife in like these misogynist ways. And like it is Jack Nicholson kind of seeming like he's failing as the head of this family, taking advice on how to be an even worse guy from like you know, an older school model of how to be a dad. Your son has a very great talent. I don't think you are aware how great it is, but he is attempting to use that very talent against your will. Indeed he is, Mr. Torrance, a very willful boy, a rather naughty boy, if I may be so bold, sir. It's his mother. (laughs) She uh, interferes. Perhaps they need a good talking to, if you don't mind my saying so. Perhaps a bit more. My girls, sir, they didn't care for the overlook at first. One of them actually stole a pack of matches and tried to burn it down. But I corrected them, sir. 
And when my wife tried to prevent me from doing my duty, I corrected her. And so, yeah, like, I don't know, what, what really hooked me in this movie watch was just thinking about the, Jack living up to this ideal that he thinks is the best way. I mean, caretaker, like caretaker, all of this talk about like failing as a caretaker. I think you could swap out caretaker for dad. He's like, all of these things I do for this family, like you don't see it, Shelly Duvall, like I'm here, I'm watching out for us. I am the caretaker of this family. I am the caretaker of the hotel. And I think caretaker but he's becomes impotent. this loaded word. But like, I think you're right about this idea of like what the comparison to force majeure is, which is like this idea of masculinity, like the impotence that we see in him is as a writer, right? It's very cleanly defined. It's like, well, is he doing his job? Not really. He's sleeping until 1130. We never see him work. We never see him even touch anything, look at anything. The only thing he he does is destroy. Yeah. Even when he types, he's like, he can't even type. He can't even type his one sentence over and over again without like mistyping it. Like, no. Yeah. But it's like, but this idea that he doesn't have an idea. He is empty. Like there is something going on there. And, and like, yes, and you can draw all these other comparisons that he's going crazy. But I do believe that if you want to like push that idea forward, like he knows his job is to be a caretaker. But everything we said or everything that he, we are seeing right. is that he is not that. He hasn't done anything to help the family. He hasn't done anything to help the hotel. He hasn't done anything that gives him any reason to really exist. And I think that that's why he goes a little bit crazy. Not a good school teacher, not a good husband, not a good father, not a good worker. And I think yeah, and yet maybe, living up to this title of caretaker. And the only thing that he can do well or the only thing that he gets, the only thing he can complete in a way, and he doesn't even do that, is to kill his wife and child. Oh, like we- it's like, it, you know. Now it makes more sense to me that one of the things Kubrick would do when he was trying to get like the cast and the crew to the mood is he would he would make them watch David Lynch's Eraserhead, Mm. which I thought like, oh yeah, creepy mood, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wait, 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 no, that's because it's a movie about, you're feeling the anxiety of being a father and feeling like you're failing it. And how do you even connect to these people in your house? And what are you doing? That makes even more sense now. Okay. Let's talk about this idea then about the documentary that was made um, about The Shining. Uh, I remember... That when I got the first uh, DVD, not even Blu-ray, of this movie, there was a 30-minute documentary directed by Kubrick's daughter. Now, Kubrick is notoriously uh, secretive and doesn't want his process shown. But there is something really fascinating about this. And I I went on a little bit of a, a wormhole on this. That the documentary is Kubrick acting out the role of Jack Torrance. He, when you look at the two of them, they're in similar positions. You see Kubrick at a typewriter in the kitchen, typing away hair as frazzled as him. You see this idea that he manipulates Shelley Duvall. Like in the documentary, it's it's a pretty damning moment. Like you see him breaking her down. Um, And Scatman Crothers, like, you know, breaks into tears when he talks about working on this movie. 67 takes, just getting in and out of a car and... um, Let's even hear a, a clip of him mistreating Shelley Duvall. Come on, okay, right now, fellas. Yep. Yep. No rushing. There's more to come, Shell. Come on. Come on, no way. Right gotta shut up anyway now, boys. Let's go, come on, Shell. Oh, Get the dummy. No, she doesn't carry him. That's right. Okay, let's go. Another no, finer, please. The 18th. 18. 18 in the tube. Swing it all back in here. Yeah, it's got to go outside. There was time. And it is 25 to 1. Well, I don't sympathize with Shelley. 
It doesn't help you, Yes, it does. It does. There is a, a big thought process that, like, Kubrick was doing a performance in letting himself be documented in this way because he does everything that Jack does. He is trying to create this thing. He is destroying the the relationships. And I think, you know, this is a movie where people walk away and are furious at the movie. Um, they are like, because I think everyone walks away going, Kubrick is a genius. And I think Nicholson and Shelley Duvall are like, well, what, wait, wait, what about us? We did some work here. Like, we did some work too. Uh, so there, this is not a movie where everyone like had a tough time, then walked away and all became like happy again. We've talked about this in so many episodes on Kubrick that I kind of bristle a little bit at like the common wisdom that Kubrick is the genius and whenever the actors aren't good, it's because the actors just weren't up to it. It's like, right. there's such a complex dynamic of Kubrick breaking his actors down and like choosing these performances out of his like, at sometimes 127, 147 at one point takes yeah. in this movie. He's picking the scene that he wants of the actors that he has like destroyed. So like, I I always want to try to say like, you have no idea what the other takes were like for the actors. You don't know why they picked this. You Their mental state is like crazy at this point. He's doing it to them. Um, and I feel like what you see on camera from the Kubrick approach of doing like take after take after take after take after take. I mean, what did he do? He, I think he did 148 takes of Carruthers telling Danny about, you know, his ability to shine. You know, this scene right here. I can remember when I was a little boy, my grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it shining. And for a long time, I thought it was just the two of us that had to shine to us. Just like you probably thought you was the only one. But there are other folks Though mostly they don't know it or don't believe it. And you watch the scene and you're like, man, like that kid is kind of low energy. But that kid has done that take so many times. And I think he wanted him to get to that low energy state. He chose the low energy state. And I actually like the low energy state because to me it makes the kid seem more like he's withholding. He's not being like kind of an actor kid. Like, I do have a friend named Tony. Like all of that has been like taken out of this kid's performance because he's so tired. And so I respect the outcome, but it seems also way excessive. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna just say something that maybe people will jump on my my back about, but I think that to the detriment of this movie, the performances are really like seem frightened. Like the like there are moments where it's a sort of like uh, Scatman looks not comfortable. It's not like it's it, it, like walking through Shelley Duvall at point. Like I think that Shelley Duvall has less of an arc because you can see almost how beaten down they are. Like they're like, and, 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 and a forced. No, you're right. And like, you know, I, maybe yeah. I take back a little bit of what I said. I was like, Jack is so big. He's going over the top. He's basically like presaging his move, his turn as the Joker. But again, I'm forgetting the important thing. These are the takes that Kubrick picked. You know, sometimes on the set, Jack would just go big on purpose because he was sort of broken. He's like, I'm doing this scene again. I'll do it crazy. Yeah. And like, if that's the one Kubrick picked, that's the one Kubrick picked. Like, you don't know what you're doing. Like, you don't, you can't have any consistency almost in a performance when you're doing it that many times because you don't know which take he's going to match up with what. You don't know when you're doing it right. You don't know when to do it better. You're completely lost as an actor. 
And so, yeah. So Kubrick is wanting this kind of over the top manic Jack. Although I do like hearing in this documentary, seeing Jack kind of work himself up. Like this is him working himself up to break down the door on Shelley Duvall. Come on, that whole door was really interesting too because they had originally given him an easy door to break down but jack had actually worked as like a volunteer fireman so like it was no problem for him to break down a door so the first time he did it it just broke so easily like oh we need to actually put a real door there but i do like <laughs> how how that I, I like that messy shit. Like I like we talked about that in, in Scream too. I like a punch and a fall and a and like sloppy. It's like it's like you know it, like he's the limp. The the other thing I would say too about this movie, uh, that you can tell at a certain point all of it's fake snow because really Jack is the only one who acknowledges that it's cold in the maze at the end oh, like yeah. he's freezing but the kid is like everyone's touching snow no one it's seems totally freezing fine. yeah like it's like if it was that bad of a blizzard like even just putting your hand in snow piles or falling like you'd be you, you would be f- f- you know frigid on some level you know yeah I mean that snow was made out of formaldehyde which seems kind oh, of wow. dangerous oh, Jesus. mixed with 900 tons of salt. Do you, can you even imagine what 900 tons of salt is? Because I had to like look it up to feel like I could even understand 900 tons of salt. That's like 200 Hummers worth of salt or like six blue whales worth of salt. I just want you to picture Jesus, wow. six blue whales in front of you and then turn them all to salt. And that is what they had for this movie. It's interesting. It's so iconic, right? You you see The Shining in Toy Story. You see The Shining in Psycho. You see, or you see elements like you see like all this. The the song that they play uh, in the ballroom is like the creepy song from Toy Story Four, where they're in like the creepy toy shop, right? Uh, they're like uh, the Raptors uh, from Jurassic Park. You see elements of like the chase scene in that. Like this movie, obviously Spielberg revisits it majorly in Ready Player One, where they recreate the entire. F- you know, this, that section, which actually from reading that book, I was like, I I needed to see something like that. That was kind of interesting, weird because it didn't really fit the movie, but interesting because it was like, well, Kubrick and Spielberg have a connection. But anyway, it's hugely influential, but there's a lot of sloppiness here. Like I'd almost argue it might be the sloppiest of all the Kubrick films, even though it's so beautifully constructed and thematically so interesting, but performances are 56 weeks. Yeah. Maybe that is speaking to the idea that he was partly Jack Torrance. He was partly unhinged here, too. He's coming off of Barry Lyndon, which is a, like, I think in a weird way. Here's my two cents. He makes Barry Lyndon. It's a weird fucking movie that people are not or not weird. It's like a it doesn't connect in a way. I love Barry Lyndon, but like, right, it doesn't it's not like maybe not the reaction that he wanted or it doesn't work a certain way, you know, whatever the, the case may be. He's trying to find his next project while he's like, you know, figuring out the test screenings of that. He goes and goes, I'm going to make this. I'm going to like he makes a basically a hit. Right. He goes and like, I'm going to make a full on. It's not blockbuster because or I guess there was the term blockbuster at this point. But it does. It is. It's huge. This is a huge Kubrick film. And it's probably I would I would argue the most accessible of all of his films. So I think in a weird way, it's 
it is it has a, a little bit of a manic energy to it. It's like, I'm going to make this and I'm also going to do this. Like, I don't know. There's something here about this movie coming off of Barry Lyndon that I think is really interesting in the sense of I'm not going to have another failure. I am putting a lot of pressure on myself to do this. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to lock myself here. We're going to create these stages. We're going to, it's going to be perfect. He's going to get out of that fucking snowcat 75 times and I'm going to do this thing. And, and I do feel like this weird mishmash, but I think that that mishmash also creates like this beautiful alchemy that makes the movie kind of perfect. You know, I, I like it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm wrestling with it, but there's something about it where I'm like, I don't have anything negative to say, but it also feels a little bit more, uh, I, I mean, know, I hear that. Well, lumpy. like Stephen King called it like a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside. But now I feel like maybe why they both took it so personally was that they both just thought they were Jack Torrance. You know, King thought he was Jack Torrance and Stanley thought he was Jack Torrance. And they both were their own versions of Jack Torrance. Yeah. And then there's this other Jack Torrance that sort of exists, the kind of combination of the three of them, plus Jack Nicholson, you know, uh, you know, adding his own jackness to it. And so you have these two guys fighting to be the villain, both kind of seeing bits of like a villain in themselves. But King being like, I didn't want to be a villain. I don't want to be a villain. I don't want to be an alcoholic. You know, he's, you know, working on getting sober. And Stanley being like, I'm a controlling asshole and I don't actually care about it. And it's fine. I mean, because Stanley, yeah, he wants to make the scariest movie ever made. You know, he yeah. like... He's, that's his goal. He thought about making The Exorcist. He asked if he could produce The Exorcist. They said no. So he's like, fine, I'll just make the world's scariest movie. I'm not even going to read King's screenplay that he wrote for it because I think that King is a weak writer. I'm going to read Freud. He's like reading Freud and thinking like, okay, people like darkness, people like eyeballs. This is the stuff I'm going to work in. I'm going to use eye contact. I don't believe in ghosts. So how am I going to make this my own, even though I have ghosts in there? I mean, he and Diane Johnson, like they literally took Stephen King's book, they grabbed scissors, cut up the parts of the book they liked, and then arranged them into some sort of a structure and then filled in the rest themselves. And Diane was kind of annoyed a little bit when she saw like the finished movie because, you know, she'd never written a script before. And it was really important to her to write more of like a ideal Wendy, the way that Stephen King had. You know, she tried to make her stronger. She wrote her more lines. Kubrick on set just kind of cut out all the lines and was like, Shelley Duvall couldn't say them, which I honestly don't believe. I think he just didn't want to like, I just think he didn't want to do. I think Shelley is actually like a really great actress. Um, but he like cut out all of the things that Johnson felt like made that character a more well-rounded character. Mm. And honestly, I'm okay with it because I actually really like Wendy. I think when I was growing up, I didn't like Wendy. I thought she was embarrassing. And now I'm thinking part of why I thought she was embarrassing is almost connected to what we were talking about this week. Like, how uncomfortable it makes us to see people be vulnerable. You know, how much we hate seeing people cry, how much the wife in force measure hated seeing her husband cry. How Shelley Duvall in this movie is terrified and weak and blubbering and crying. And we want to think that we wouldn't be like that, except we probably would be, but she's so close to who we're afraid that we are that we don't want to acknowledge it. But then honestly, I think she does pretty good. Her son is hurt. She, she understands what's happening right away that she needs to protect him. She's not dumb about it. She's like, got to protect my son. She's carrying a baseball bat because she's worried she about a woman in the house. Everything that he is incapable of doing. Right. Yeah. Like, and if we're talking about those roles, this idea that he can't do the thing, he can't be the protector. He can't be the provider. She does every one of them. And without the confidence that he has. Like, he has this false swagger, right? This, hey, I'm here, and this is great, and I'm going to, like, whatever it is. And by the way, it's a great performance. And I know that in that documentary, too, he, like, talks about, like, 
he was channeling Boris Karloff, which mm-hmm. is interesting, like a Frankenstein, like this Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. I mean, energy. is that why he starts limping out of nowhere? You're like, why are you limping, bro? Well, like, he's limping because no. he fell down the stairs so hard. Oh, okay. That's right. Crazy. I mean, he, he really took the that. head. Yeah. I mean, it, right. he I like, yeah, he really took that. He really takes yeah. a tumble there. I, I thought that too. And I was like, why is he limping? I was like, oh yeah, because of that. Because there's that, but there's a large piece where you don't see him again. That's why it doesn't feel, or go, why is he limping? Because it is like, then you go into that whole Scatman yeah. side story. Um, oh yeah. All but, of Scatman's trouble problem. He's like, I'm on a plane. It's, it, yes, I, but honestly, I know. Yeah. I Excuse like, me, ma'am. We what so time do we land? Yeah. Why are we watching him travel so much? But then I was like, Maybe so we don't have the thing that I hate in movies where it's like suddenly Scatman is just there and he saves the day or like distracts. By the way. Because yes, that is it, what happens in horror films. Ta-da, we just put this character in. How do you get, how does he get there? How does yeah. he get there in the snowiest night? Like, what does he do? He has a friend, of course. Yeah, there, so and I love like his line. getting around the part that I hate about these movies, which I yes. appreciate. But then it is weird watching him be on the airplane. You know, so there is this idea, I think, where, you know, Scatman is a hero. Definitely gets killed. Definitely. Uh, but he's a hero because he is the reason why Danny survives. Right. And, and and it's not a traditional hero role. Like you don't cut him at the end. Like, oh, it was just a flesh wound, you know, like but he sacrificed himself. And if you have to imagine that if if Danny had the shining and Scatman has the shining, uh, you know, he may have even foreseen his own death and he was just racing to get there to stop that. You That's know? kind of what I was wondering. Does he know that he's going to die when he gets there? I mean, he's got I his like he, quiet, yeah. dull life in a hotel in Miami, naked pictures everywhere. I love that. Oh, and, room. He, uh, and he gives up. I, I appreciate that. It's like, yeah, he's not just like some noble guy is going to die. He's got his lusts. Why can't a guy have some lust? Well, there is something really interesting too, like this idea that the ghosts are, the ghosts are irritated because the only thing that they that will prevent them from getting this bloodletting or, or getting this sacrifice is Danny, right? The shining, the shining, the power of him, the shining that he has, this ability to speak. And then the idea too, like I know that this is talked about in Dr. Sleep, the voice that, that Danny has, uh, I guess it's now revealed that that's him older, right? So it's like the older version of him is in the younger version of him. And that's how he is able to see it. That, oh, that's I what guess. I understood. Oh. I forgot uh, everything about that movie except yeah. the hat. Although you so, did hear like a little bit of what the shining voice is sort of when you hear Jack yelling in one room and then kind of this like vibrato voice coming to Danny. I think we should discuss Danny. I think we should discuss what should be done with so there's like a taste of what The Shining is. Mm. But I would say also the reason why the reason why the house doesn't win, even though the house always wins mm. in some way, is also because of Wendy. You know, like the ghost comes in, like she's done it right. She knocks him out. She puts him in the storage room. Very smart. She knows that he's lying to her. He's like, let me out. I'm fine. Oh, my head, you hit me really hard. And she's like, I don't trust you. And it hurts her to say that. You can In her vulnerability, you see that she's like, my, he's maybe lying to me. I can't take that risk. The fact that I, it hurts her yeah. to walk away and she's not just like, I'm a badass, fuck you. Like, that makes it to me even more compelling. And then, of course, you know, the ghost is like, your wife is screwing this up. She's stronger than you. And it's, you hear that, like, really part of Jack's downfall is just his thin skin. As soon as he's insulted, he flies into a range and he feels insulted hearing that his wife is stronger. Somewhat more resourceful. She seems to have got the better of you. 
the moment, Mr. Grady. Only for the moment. I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way, Mr. Thomas. Again, attacking his masculinity, but I will say when you say the House doesn't win, I think the House does win. They got their body. They got two of them. You know, um, like oh, it's no, not. So Scatman has to wander there too. I mean, it look like the idea is like they. I don't think it's. I think that if you're going through the traditional roles and the very stereotypical roles of like the man, like the man killing his wife and child, like that is such a um, weak thing to do, right? Because it's like, or like, let's just say, go the most stereotypical thing. It's like strong man kills woman and child, right? Like, and here they upend that, right? Like they like he gets killed, but it doesn't like. I think the ghosts just want blood. I don't think they were like, we need a woman and a child. That doesn't figure into any of the story. Like, as a matter of fact, you know, at the end, the last scene is, you know, he's in the picture. He's there. He got like, mm-hmm. he is he reincarnated? Is whatever. It's like he's doomed to redo this or, or be a part of this. So it's like it. This is the loop. This is the cycle. This is the abuse. This is the this is the the trip that he is on. And I think at the end of the day, the thing that unites all of them is that the man dies too. It wasn't like the man kills his wife and kids and then goes off to Miami. The man also kills himself. It's just a matter of part of the crazy is that. So I I do think it's just like, it's just slightly skewed from what happened before, or at least what we know happened before. Cause we only heard one story. I think it's happened a lot more. I think if we understand that ending that Kubrick did shoot with Ullman, this might happen every fucking year. I mean, every year. I mean, at sooner or later, the hiring board is going to really catch up to you. Well, I mean, you, you know, maybe he does it all off the books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, there are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Amy, we know that this is a a commercial hit, right? This is a giant Kubrick hit, but critically, how do people react? I mean, because it's coming after Barry Lyndon, it's coming after some different films, and I do believe that it's a big commercial film, even though it's a decidedly Kubrick film. Was that... You know, maybe uh, not a conflict of interest, but did people have a hard time with that? Well, yeah, I mean, it did what Kubrick wanted. It made him a ton of money on his own terms. But the critical reaction, very polarized. Very, very mixed. Even the people who loved it were like, eh. And a lot of people just outright hated it. I mean, like, the Variety review gets mean. The Variety review says, like, with everything to work with, director Stanley Kubrick has teamed with Jumpy Jack Nicholson to destroy all that was so terrifying about Stephen King's bestseller. He throws 90% of King's creation out. 
the crazier Nicholson gets, the more idiotic he looks. And, that she, and he says that Shelley Duvall transforms the warm, sympathetic wife of the book into a simpering, quote, semi-retarded hysteric. Jesus. Ooh, way to throw in a bunch of like loaded, awful, canceled language now. Um, yeah, but no, a lot of people didn't like the film. I mean, the Washington Post called it a ponderous, lackluster distillation. They said they can't recall a more elaborately ineffective scare movie. They said that while retaining the outline of King's haunted house fable, Kubrick obscures or weakens most of the underlying psychological turmoil. He minimizes the sinister possibilities. Having invited us to a Halloween party, he declines to provide the appropriate tingly refreshments. He also points out that you doubt that Jack Nicholson's Jack and Shelley Duvall's Wendy have ever met, let alone married, produced a child, gone through rough times, and arrived at this crisis. He says that he allows the co-stars to embarrass themselves with, like, gauche, inadvertently ridiculous performances of different kinds. I hate that kind of stuff because, it's again, he allows the co-stars. No, he forced the co-stars. He made it. He chose it. But he says, you know, yeah, like where Nicholson seems to need toning down the jittery and amateurish Duvall cries for, out for basic dramatic coaching. And lastly, the Washington Post said that they just thought the movie was also way too bright. You know, that in all of these famous hallway shots, he's just mad that there's no dark shadows, all the spooky stuff that you expect in a horror film. He says, you know, a would-be spooky picture with no place for the spooks to hide. And I thought that note of the brightness was interesting because I find myself terrified in horror films when I can see everything. When there's shadows and stuff, I'm like, okay, something's in that shadow, you know? And sometimes it can be used to great effect, like the way that we were talking about with Blair Witch, where like the things you can't see are really what's terrifying you because the camera's moving around, everything's out of focus. But I don't want to undersell the power of like a bright movie where you're actually looking everywhere because you don't know where to look because the scary thing could be coming from any corner. And Pauline Kael, who didn't like the film, she kind of defended the brightness of it. You know, she says, it took nerve or maybe something like hubris for Kubrick to go against all convention and shoot most of the gothic in broad daylight. She said probably he liked the idea of our waking into a nightmare instead of falling asleep into one. I think that's an interesting point. But then she kind of says, who wants to see evil in daylight through a wide angle lens? Isn't that where it's scariest? I mean, like... Yeah, if the daylight isn't safe, what is? At least nighttime passes. I think there's something about this movie where it's a magic trick. They show you everything, right? So there is nothing to be afraid of. You think you understand it. And then to put you in this, you know, in this box and have things change, but is really, I think, really more interesting. But we're really watching a person go insane. And it's similar to what we saw in Taxi Driver. Like, this is someone on the edge and they hit a moment. And it's, yes, there are ghosts. Yes, there are supernatural elements at work. There is a lot of history in this building. But really, what Kubrick has done is painted a picture of a family with one person suffering from mental illness who is then activated Right. Maybe it would never have been activated if they weren't in that house. But I think that's the story that he's telling. And I think he's telling a larger story thematically, like we've talked about. I think that, you know, if you if you look and you want to, like, lean into the idea that he was molesting his son, there's another layer there. But there's there's so much on top of it. And I think it it's one of those examples of, well, the book is better than the movie. But I don't think Kubrick was making a movie about the book. No, I think he was using it as a jumping off point. That's for sure. Because to even pick on this book, he had like, 
his assistant bring him stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of every popular horror book. And this was the only one he said he could even finish. He just hated all of them. So no matter how much he disses King, he at least liked this book enough to read it and pick it from it's the It's a stack. fascinating idea. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's um, and I do think, obviously, everyone's wrong that just reviewed the film because it, it has this lasting effect. And I think what you, you can see how directors have have leaned into this. I mean, I think Get Out is a beautiful example of uh, a similarity to The Shining, you know, as far as the way that they tell story. And uh, and it can be small, it can be subtle, it can, you know, there is a beauty to not explaining everything, you know? And, and I know there that is. that's frustrating, I mean, but when it's done this well, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, on that point of explaining, I don't even know if I would necessarily swear in court that Jack Nicholson has like a mental illness. I just think he has illnesses that people have, common illnesses. He's a misogynist jerk. He's an alcoholic. He's having problems going straight, you know, in his life. He snapped. He right? snapped. So, but, but he he's snapped. Like, yes. But he's like, right. what makes him snap, a lot of that buildup inside him, that volcano, is just shared by millions and millions of people. And Absolutely. that is terrifying. When, and, and again, we don't know much. So I think the the idea is that we are putting ourselves in his shoes. I think that the memification of this movie has done probably a greater disservice to the performance because I do believe like in rewatching that scene five times, it's kind of amazing to watch him talk to the bartender in that first scene. Just the way he's he is making choices. It's not like he's unhinged or even if he is unhinged, that's what. Kubrick wanted like he's not going oh I guess we got to use that take no you had a million (laughs) takes I think that I think what he's trying to do is make him more unhinged in the ghost world so that he's being accepted for as crazy as he I mean these are ghosts these are this is like a specter but when he talks to his wife when he goes back to Shelley Duvall and says hey there was nothing in that room there was nothing in that room it's so like That's you can't say he gives an unhinged performance when it's incredibly layered. It's not like ramping up and by the end it's super insane. Yes, it gets there. But even as it's getting there, we're watching we're watching these moments like, you know, and and I think it is a a a beautiful fluctuation of stuff. And I think that you see a lot of directors steal this and it's. Well, and even unhinged, he's still calculating. He's mm-hmm. trying to charm the bartender even when he's being crazy. How's my credit? Blah, 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 blah. But he then thinks also he's slick. He thinks he's slick even as he's being gigantic. At Grady. Like when Grady yeah. brings him into the bathroom and he's poking at him. Yeah. Like, well, you did this. Yeah, like, you did it. Like he, you know, he, he in many respects gets the respect that he wants and the attention that he, how he perceives himself in this world, this world where he is the masculine archetype. Everyone is excited to see him. He is welcomed in. And the final moment is, yes, he isn't back in that world where he's this literally the center of the picture in focus, smiling brightly. There he is. And, uh, you know, and look, I, I think it's a movie that I honestly forgot the first half hour of. Like, there's a lot of time before they actually get to and it's closed. Right. Like and there's so much exposition kind of beautifully woven in through great camera work. And again, the dolly shots in this movie are phenomenal. And I think, you know, what is what is the shining? I don't know. Why does Scatman have it and why does Danny have it? I don't know. What's the connection between them? Like there are these things that are open, but I also love this idea that 
it's just a little bit, it's a little bit of magic. It's a little bit of magic. And by having someone else have it, it, it kind of grounds it in a way like, oh, Scatman has it too. So it's and like, he, oh, he, me and my grandmother had it. But I also, I, I also love that The Shining is what freaks these ghosts out. Like, it, like that's the only thing. Like, it's like, he's the only one. Danny's the only one who can see ahead and, and kind of be in front of them. And they are frightened by him. And that's really interesting, too. I mean, and then and, and something that I think was trying to be explored in Dr. Sleep, whether or not that's in Stephen King's book or, or the film, uh, which many people said we should do both together. But after no way. a roundtable discussion, I found that that was not the case. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I will say that the one thing I was really interested in is, you know, we talk a lot about in horror films how these actors get eaten up and spit out, right? Like we use them and then we never want to see them again. And I was thinking about that with Danny Torrance. Like this is a guy who, you know, I looked on his IMDb afterwards, but it's like, you know, a very iconic performance. The guy is still acting. Uh, uh, well, not really. I mean, he was in The Shining. Uh, he was in a TV movie two years after that. And then he plays like a spectator in Dr. Sleep. So I guess he's not really acting. I guess oh, no. he stopped. He retired. He came he back retired. in for one last heist. That's all. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but like, any, but you know, like, I mean, where, are the, where are these people besides, you know, Jack Nicholson? Uh, you know, like I was just thinking about all these great faces. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't tracking down some of them, you know, like the Swiss model who plays the lady in the bathtub every so often she gets interviewed. She, I think passed away last summer. Uh, but she's just like, I don't know. He hired me. He liked my my body. I walked around. That was really it. He took. He spent a week having me get out of the bathtub. Kind of boring. Don't really think about it that much. The only people who seem to really love still talking about it um, are the Shining Twins, who I totally really? adore. Oh, the Shining Twins. They're just great. I mean, they live in England. Their names are Lisa and Louise Byrne. They were 12 years old when they made the movie. And they still show up every so often and do kind of spooky things together. They love to get interviewed every so often. And you can find them right now, ta-da, where everybody cool is hiding out on Cameo. Here is a video that they posted to their Twitter, which I think is called like at Shining Twins Official or something like that, or at Shining Twins on Twitter, introducing themselves on Cameo. Come and play with us on Cameo forever and ever and ever. I also just want to call out Tony Burton, who, uh, you know, is a figure in all the Rocky films. He plays uh, the guy who runs the uh, the repair shop that Scatman uh, frequents. I just love seeing that uh, uh, that actor. I don't know, like, is one of those actors like, well, he's been in everything. And then you look and it's like, well, he's been in a lot of TV and, and really the Rocky movies. But it's just one of those faces that I was like uh, very, very happy to see uh, in that movie and does a great job. Does a great job. And I guess now we are closing out our snowbound cold series. And I only really realized while watching The Shining that how much most of these films had to do with each other. Because honestly, I think just like this kind of closing segment of bop, 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 this movie, Force Majeure, and then Grand Budapest. I'm like, man, if you have a movie set in snow, there's going to be a hotel and there's going to be skiing. I mean, did you know that somebody has done a mashup video of The Shining meets Grand Budapest Hotel? No. Yes, they call it the Grand Overlook Hotel. The whole video is actually more of like a visual joke. It's wonderful. I totally recommend looking it up on YouTube. You can get a tiny taste of it here. You're now going to be officially interviewed. Well, that sounds fine to me. I will say, proprietor to proprietor, I would much rather be in a Monsieur Gustave Hotel. Uh, I think you're right. I will say this, uh, though, Amy, probably in the 1920s, it would give it a run for its money. Uh, you know, put it like not the 70s version of the Overlook, but the, the 20s version of the Overlook. Oh my gosh. I, think. I guess that is the same point. Everything deteriorates. It's cool. Yeah. And then it gets there bad. You go. 
And also The Shining answers a question that we asked during Forest Majeure. Remember, we were like, man, European mountains seem so much scarier than ours. Yeah. There's that little line in here where they're like, yeah, when we built this in 1907, nobody wanted to do winter sports. So it, yeah, this history of skiing even reflected in The Shining. That's why our mountains are more like man-made, timid. We weren't skiing up there. Well, I also say this, Ido, we talked about the connection between all these films. And the connection simply is, take care of yourself during the winter months. People, come on. This is a, this is a, a moment that can break you. And, and we're just coming out of a, a pandemic. So all I want to say is, everybody, take a breath. Do some self-care, whatever that means to you. And uh, I hope you're doing well, because this really has made me uh, afraid of what can happen in winter. Uh, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Um, but you know what? It's a seasonal affective disorder, right? Sad. Well, sad. sad disorder. Get, get yourself disorder. one of those uh, sunlight lamps. Um, Amy, we talked about The Contenders, which is our new series coming up. Well, Paul, I am excited to kick off our Contender series. And I do feel like... I want to do a McKay. I want to do a McKay. I'm ready to do a McKay. The problem is there's so many McKays to do. And what if I just spit one out? Can I wave a flag and say, can we do Talladega Nights? Wow. Not expecting that choice uh, of all the Adam McKay movies. You're picking Talladega Nights. All right. You know what? I like this idea, though, because I do think it speaks to a larger conversation about the messages in McKay's movies. And... Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. My choice might have been Step Brothers, but I actually think the Talladega Nights is going to be a lot more interesting and it give me a chance to revisit it. I've only seen it once. Oh, it's it's low key become one of my favorites. I'm a Step Brothers girl. I will stand mm. up for Step Brothers. Yeah. Talladega Nights really creeping up on me. I wow. think it's his movie about George Bush. Let's take a listen to the trailer. Ricky Bobby was born. the fastest man alive. That's my boy, Ricky! Woo! Dear Lord, baby Jesus, I want to thank you for my family. My two beautiful sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, and of course my red-hot smoking wife, Carly. Woo! Mmm! Ow! You know, it might be cool sometime you could set me up for a win. You can't have two number ones. Yeah, you can. That makes 11. But no man stays on top. Absolutely, ma'am. I'd love to sign your baby. You're not going to want to wash that forehead. Forever. Well, the big news is that NASCAR has gone French. I am coming for you, Licky Bubby. He's in the wall. Uh-oh. Yep, I'm flying through the air. This is not good. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. You're not on fire, Ricky Bobby. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jewish guy. Help me, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft and get the fire off From the guys who brought you Anchorman and the 40-year-old virgin. The doctor told us you can walk. It's all in your head. I am so paralyzed! You want to see what my life is? Don't you stick that knife in your leg. Hmm? Oh, Will Ferrell. Ricky Bobby is not a thinker. Give me a fastball, twisted line. What the hell's a fastball? Give me another. Ricky Bobby is a driver. Yeah, it's a real deal down there. Ricky Bobby wins it in reverse. What does that do? Did that blow your mind? That just happened. You don't drive with your eyes. You've got to feel the road. The story of a man who could only count to number one. I'm embarrassed. I really thought I could feel it. 
Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. You gotta learn to drive with the fear. <laughs> oh my God! There ain't nothing more frightening than driving with a live cougar. Oh, Ricky, the... control your heart rate. I can't control my heart rate. I got a cougar on me. So see you next week for Talladega Nights. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank you.